Good afternoon to everyone who remains. You have your Bibles with you? I would invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we'll be in verses 17 through 25. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 25. Now, in this life that we live, one thing you can be sure of is there will be many disappointments and tragedies. Men are and always will be cruel and unkind to one another. It's an inevitable fact of living in a fallen world. But few things touch our sense of injustice as much as betrayal. It's one thing to be captured by an enemy. It is something else entirely to be handed over by a friend. There's a difference between facing your foe face to face and being stabbed in the back. It's a sin most difficult to forgive. And history books never look kindly on the betrayer. Their names always go down in infamy. The 300 at Thermopylae betrayed by Philitus of Trachius. There was a betrayal of Judas, Julius Caesar, and you all know who betrayed him, Brutus. There was the betrayal of the Patriots by Benedict Arnold. All of these names are probably familiar with you, to you. None of them conjure up fond thoughts or admiration. And of all of the betrayals in all of human history, none have become more notorious or well-known than the betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas Iscariot. It's a betrayal that echoes through chapter 26 and is a, a reminder to us of the intensity of the trial that the Lord is willingly enduring. Matthew 26, verses 17 through 25. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Because nothing we do, Lord, nothing we set our hearts to to please you in, no worship we offer if it is not animated and brought to life by you, it falls to the ground flat. And so as we lift our hearts toward you this afternoon, 
we ask that you would come down and meet with us so that, Lord, you would get the glory and we would be helped to grow and to be transformed into Christ's likeness. That's the goal of our lives, that we would be like Christ. We can't do that apart from your mercy and your grace, Lord. And so I pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Most of us know how this story ends. And even though what follows is tragic, it's not shocking. We've, we've heard it before. We've heard it often. We know what's going on here. We, we don't have the same kind of astonishment and sorrow that the disciples did. We don't have to have that kind of reaction. Being surprised, that's not the purpose of the text. It's not in here to surprise us. It's not the point of the verse to shock. But familiarity does breed contempt. And if we carelessly rush over passages that we're more or less familiar with, we don't stop to consider, uh, consider them. We don't try to put ourselves into that upper room where Jesus is. We don't uh, go deeper than what we already assume the passage is saying or ask, what does this mean? When we do that, then we'll lose all appreciation for what we're reading about, and it becomes nothing more than just some ancient fact, right? Yes, Jesus celebrated Passover, and Judas betrayed him. Historical, true, no bearing on me whatsoever. In the same way you might say, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, or uh, Pharaoh built the pyramids. Interesting, that's neat, doesn't mean a thing to me today. This is not the way to read the Bible. It's not the way to understand the life of Christ. It is a historical fact, but it doesn't end there. It is more than just records of events. These events, what you're reading about in Scripture, they touch and they influence and they inform and they even define our lives today. And so as we move through this passage, don't only think, wow, that's very interesting what happened. But be asking the question, how should this affect me and my thinking and my life? What bearing does this passage have on me today in 2021? Because I assure you it does. Now this passage, it's divided into three parts. Verses 17 through 19, and we'll look at them in part. Verses 17 through 19, the Passover preparation. Verses 20 through 21... Jesus announcing the betrayal, or sorry, verses 20 through 24, and then verse 25, the confrontation between Judas and Christ. So in the first, verses 17 through 19, according to the Hebrew calendar, the day is the 14th of Nisan. It's the Passover. This is the day that the meal is to be eaten. It's a, it's a celebration comparable mostly to our Christmas, right? It has that kind of significance to the Jew. If you were to ask, what's the most important holiday of the year? You would say, well, Christmas, probably, most of us. Passover was the most important celebration of the year, and it, it has that kind of significance. And according to the book of Exodus, it was to be celebrated by household. Everyone who lived under your roof would celebrate together, you would eat a salad and some uh, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and a lamb sacrificed at the temple and roasted. And this would have to be eaten by in, have to be eaten in Jerusalem by every Jew who lived in Palestine. And there were more, but this was a, a regulated holiday. There were things you had to do. Now there are also a few traditions that made their way into the uh, celebration as well. And before you scoff and say those traditions getting in, uh, just remember we have trees and lights and gift giving and all kinds of things at Christmas that have nothing to do with Luke chapter 2. And yet they become so much a part of the Christmas season it wouldn't feel like Christmas without them. Well, Passover was the same way. 
They would bless four cups of wine, one brought out between each course of the meal. There would be a retelling of the Exodus story and the deliverance of Egypt. That was prompted by the ritual question from the oldest child, or maybe it was the youngest child, the youngest that could speak. But they would ask the father, what does this all mean? And the father would then tell the story. It was, it was a regulated, ritualistic celebration. Now all this to say, there was a lot to get ready for. And so Jesus sends two of his disciples, Peter and John. He sends them into town to look for a man carrying a water jug telling them, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand, we will keep the Passover at your house with the disciples. Those details, by the way, come from Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel, who both include all of this, uh, this event. So the disciples go, just like Christ told them. They go into the city that's bustling with possibly millions of people, and they're looking for somebody carrying a water jug so they can go to his house and get ready for the Passover. And maybe you wonder, how in the world, with all of those people, are they going to find a man carrying around a water jug? Well, it's more simple than you might think, because carrying water in those days was almost exclusively a woman's job. And to see a man carrying a jug of water would be a strange sight indeed. And that's how they identify this individual And clearly he did stand out enough for them to notice him because they did notice him and they go to him, they find him. He's probably a servant. And he takes the disciples to his master's house and that's where they eat the Passover. Mark tells us the master of the house had prepared and furnished the room for them. Now this... uh, Shouldn't be surprising because the law in Jerusalem was at Passover time. If you had any available space in your home, it had to be made accessible to those who were looking for a place to eat. So this was a kind of a common occurrence in Jerusalem. Somebody would go and say, we're going to celebrate the Passover at your house. And uh, the law of the land at the time meant you had to say yes and give it to them free of charge. Whoever this man was gladly subjected himself to the law, was even prepared in advance. And so the disciples, they do what they're asked. They get the Passover ready. And the one thing I want you to notice in this passage is not only that the disciples did what Jesus asked and went and got it ready, but Jesus' desire and obligation to keep the Passover. It was his duty as a Jewish man under the Old Covenant to keep the Passover. And he most certainly would keep it, not only for law's sake, but because it was his delight to do so. Not only was it his delight to keep the Passover, it was appropriate for him to keep the Passover. It was fitting for the occasion. What the Lord's about to do on the next day, he's going to offer himself It's a sacrifice for the redemption of His people. It has been foreshadowed for centuries by Passover, where God redeemed His people from bondage in Egypt. And in the same way God redeemed His people from bondage in Egypt, He's going to redeem His people all over the world from the bondage of sin and death through Christ. One commentator writes on this passage, it was necessary that He eat the Passover meal with His disciples on the night He was to die. And in that Passover atmosphere, convey to them by word and by symbol the significance of His death for themselves and for all mankind. He is about to fulfill what the Passover shadowed. And where in Egypt in those ancient times the angel of death passed over the Jewish households because they were covered by the blood of a lamb, from this day... 2,000 years ago on until today, in the present, the specter of death passes by all of those who are covered by the blood of Christ by faith. God is about to send His Lamb into the world to be slain, and His house, the world, and those who believe will be covered by the blood of the Lamb so that death will no longer go in and grab them. This is what is about to be accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does he do so willingly, he initiates the preparation. He makes sure Passover is not going to be missed. 
And he's doing it knowing what's about to happen to him. He is aware that he is about to be betrayed. He is aware of the mock trial he is going to be subjected to. He knows all of the suffering that's on the horizon, right? It's almost like he's in a, in a, in a high-walled corral with a bull charging at him and he can't get out. He knows he's about to endure the curse, capital C, He's aware of the coming divine trauma and the suffering and abandonment he will endure on the cross. He he is about to die the worst possible death in the worst possible way. And through it all, pay attention, his singular focus in this is to do the will of his Father. His goal, everything that's about to happen to him, the dark clouds are gathering around Jerusalem for Christ. And his mind is set on doing the will of his Father, on obedience and worship to God. And I want you to see his determination to do this and ask yourself, how determined are you to worship the Lord and seek to do his will? Just take Sunday morning, for example. Our case afternoon, but Sundays. What does it take to derail your Sunday morning? What does it take to prevent you from coming together and worshiping? Right? As God requires of His people on Sundays. Some people, it's a couple of raindrops, and that's all it takes. Some days, you, you want to turn back at the slightest inconvenience. You're tired. Missed the alarm. Time change. Traffic is bad today. Something better came up. Right? There's a lion in the streets. Right? It's dangerous out there. That's what Proverbs says. Or maybe you had a fight with your spouse or your kids. It's been a tough week. Or maybe it's just too much today. You really don't feel like it. Maybe so-and-so is going to be there and you can't stand to be in the same place as them. Well, how does that compare here to Christ? If there ever was a man who had an excuse for doing something other than the worship together that God requires, it was Jesus at this moment. There was ever a man who could say, well, under the circumstances, and given everything that's going on and is about to happen, I think I'm going to have to skip out on that service today. I've got a lot of my heart, a lot of my mind, a lot of my plate, just can't make it happen. If anyone could have made that excuse, it would have been him, right? I'm going to be dead in a day and a half. What's it matter if I keep the Passover? Or he could have said, thinking of Judas, you want me to eat the Passover with, with him? He's the one who's going to betray me. I'm not going to have a meal with Judas. No, he wouldn't have any of that. I doubt that an excuse even ever crossed Christ's mind. And with all of the weight he was carrying in that moment, it never occurred to him maybe he should be doing something else. His priority was the will of his heavenly Father. And not only was it his priority and his duty, it was his delight. He says, it is my food, of the King James says, it's my meat to do the will of the one who sent me. If anything, that's a lesson for us on where our priority should be on worship. If Christ is our example, how should we think, how should we confront reasons that tempt us to forsake the gathering together? Second thing this uh, Passover pictures is Christ's love for his people and his patience with his enemies. Do you realize the kind of compassion that Jesus is showing here preparing for the Passover? He is determined to sit down to this memorial meal with his betrayer and 11 others who soon they're going to fall asleep when he asks him to pray in the garden. When his enemies come, they're going to abandon him. When he is at trial and on the cross, None of them are there except John. They're about to forsake him in his hour of darkness. And yet he is determined to sit down with these people 
and pledge himself and his unyielding love to them, fellowship with them, and you read John 12 through 17, encourage them and strengthen them and pray for them, knowing one of them's going to betray them and they're all going to fall away. How do you treat people you know are going to hurt you? You know. How do you treat people you know have made up their minds to wrong you? How do you treat them when you know they're unreliable and not probably going to stick by in your hour of need? Or when you know at best they're going to disappoint you? I doubt you would have the same kind of warmth that Christ does for these disciples and, by extension, us. I mean, if you knew, what would you do? This person's going to betray you, write him off. Right? Get him out of your sight. You don't need those kind of toxic people in your life. You don't need to be kind to them. You don't need to care for them. And you certainly don't need to love them. And if you have people life, uh, like that in your life, if you do, and, and by the way, you do, <laughs> because everyone will eventually disappoint you, It's just a matter of when that will happen. So if you have really good relationships in your life that have never disappointed you once, you just wait because it's going to happen. And if you call yourself a Christian, you might do the Christianity like this. So Christians, I know I'm supposed to forgive and whatever towards these people. So this is what I'm going to do. I call it Christianity to the light. It's really not the Christian thing at all. But you tolerate the person. Right? You pretend to have affection towards them. You'll smile at them when they're around. But in your heart, you can't wait for them to be gone. You bite your tongue, you grin and bear it, but that's as far as you're willing to go. And the capacity for heartfelt, genuine affection for these people who will disappoint you isn't there. If that describes you, then listen. That's not Christianity. It's not Christianity light. There's no such thing. The reason it's not Christianity is because it's nothing like Christ. He earnestly desires to share a meal with these people and give His life for them and give them the bread and the cup, making known to them what He's about to do. And not only... Does he earnestly desire it? He looks forward to it and delights to do it. Luke 22, 15. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer and die. He tells his disciples, knowing how they're going to treat him, knowing how they're going to respond when trouble comes, I have earnestly desired to celebrate the Passover. Not just celebrate it, but celebrate it with you. And if they add to his grief, he only seeks to increase their joy. I mean, how is that for love? That's what it means to love other people. You love those who disappoint you, and you love those who hurt you, and you love those who make promises that they don't keep. And you think, if I do that, I'll get hurt. Yes, you will. But you'll also be like Christ. And that, folks, is a whole lot better than avoiding hurt feelings. But having this mind of Christ is the only remedy for hurt feelings. It's naive to think that people in this world, friends and loved ones, won't hurt you or disappoint you or even desert you in your hour of need. They will. All of them. You will get hurt. It's part of living in this fallen world. It will happen. The one person you thought, I didn't think they would ever do it, they will. In fact, most of you probably have already experienced this to some degree or another. Christ-like forgiveness and Christ-like love toward those other people is the only way that those relationships 
are going to be healed. So you want healing for those relationships? You want healing for uh, strife between you and someone who's hurt you? This is the way. Love like Christ. It's only going to be a matter of time before you in turn hurt or disappoint them. And when it happens, you're going to want them to return the same kind of affection towards you. And when that happens, two people loving one another in Christ, like Christ, your relationship is invincible. Let's go to verses 20 through 24, where Jesus makes it plain that he is about to be betrayed. Uh, betrayed. He makes the announcement, one of you will betray me. It's an amazing thing to do. Who announces their own betrayal? If you knew that you were going to be betrayed, what would you do? I have the traitor over for a meal? Maybe. So you could tie them up and lock them in a chest. You'd be on your defenses, right? You'd be ready to strike back. Whatever your response would be, it wouldn't be what the Lord does right here. So why does He respond like this? This is not how people respond when they're betrayer and they know it. He's got the coins jingling in his pocket sitting right there. Jesus does this well, for one reason, to show that he is, in fact, in control over everything that's happening and he cannot be surprised and his will will never be thwarted. Well, it proves that to be sure. We'll look at that shortly in Judas. But the emphasis in these verses is an admonition given to those at the table. He is admonishing his disciples. And these verses are a warning and a call for self-examination amongst his 12 followers. One of you, he tells them, will betray me. And this is not the 500 that he was able to reveal himself to after his resurrection. It's not the 72 that are sent out. It's not the large crowds that follow Jesus around. These are the 12, Jesus' closest companions. And when he tells them what's about to take place, that one of them will betray him, they respond not with suspicion towards Christ. You don't know what you're talking about. They don't do that. And they don't respond with suspicion towards one another. That'd probably be our response, right? If we were there, we'd be looking around, squinting, like, who's it going to be? That's not how they respond. No, they respond uh, as in, with what Hendrickson, famous commentator of Matthew, William Hendrickson, calls a wholesome self-distrust. A wholesome self-distrust. You know what that is? It means they don't trust themselves. Look at their response. What do they say? Lord, am I the one? Is it me who's going to betray you? This is not some formality. When they hear that treachery is in their midst, the first place each man looks is to himself. Now they may have had small faith and not known a lot. They may, may have misunderstood Jesus many times, but they know this. As unlikely as it might seem, each of them is capable of treachery. Each of them is capable of carrying out this kind of betrayal. They know it. They don't deny it. They don't sugarcoat what's in their heart. They don't trust themselves at all, and rightly so. I mean, one of the most dangerous things a person can say regarding sin and regarding themselves, most dangerous thing is, not me. I would never do that. Look, you don't know. You don't know. The heart of a man, the Proverbs tell us, is deep waters and he hardly understands it himself. In fact, how many things have you done that you said you would never do. 
things that as a child or as a young person you could never imagine yourself doing. They were repulsive to you and now it's just a regular habit. That's the effect that temptation has on the heart. It warps and calluses your conscience so that you don't feel anything anymore. It, it, when that happens, we have high estimations of ourselves. We think highly of me. We think highly of our own abilities, our own goodness, our own resolve and ability to resist temptation. We think a lot of us. We're like Hazael from 2 Kings 8. 2 Kings 8, Hazael, he is an attendant of the king, Ben-Hadad of Syria. The king is sick. And so Hazael goes to ask the prophet Elisha if the king will get better. And Elisha says to him, Hazael comes in the room, asks his question to the prophet, and Elisha says, you'll tell him he will, but you're going to kill him. Elisha stares at him until he becomes embarrassed. And so Hazael objects. He gets angry. He says, what kind of dog do you think I am? that I would do such a thing. Elisha tells him again, and Hazael leaves. Goes back to, uh, back to Syria, back to the palace, back to the king, tells the king, you will recover. And then later that night, takes a pillow, soaks it in water, and holds it over the king's face until he's dead. Elisha knew what kind of person Hazael was. In fact, Elisha knew who Hazael was better than Hazael knew who he was. And many are like this today, even here in this room. You don't know what you're capable of. You don't know. You might be this close to walking away from Christ, yet you would never admit it. You're, you're capable of it. Everyone in the room has the capability to walk away, to turn their back, and never grace the doors of a church, open the Bible, lift a prayer again. You have to understand, if you're a Christian, you aren't kept a Christian because you wake up every day and decide, I'm going to keep myself in Christ. You don't wake up every day and resolve to keep going. If you're a Christian, the only reason, everybody in this room who, who follows Christ, the only reason why you woke up this morning still a Christian, and the only reason you're going to go to bed tonight a Christian, and wake up the next day a Christian until you die, is because Jesus Christ holds you and keeps you. It's the only reason you're not going to abandon Him. It's not in your strong resolve or determination. It's the only reason you're going to press on. The reason why you haven't fallen into some terrible sin is because Christ has kept you by grace from it. But you are capable of every sin you most despise. And even if you don't think so, say, never me, you don't know yourself. And I don't say this to cut down the character of anybody in this room. This is true for everyone in this room. And the reason I say it is because if you don't think you're capable, then you don't know the danger that you're in. Because if you, if you think, never me, you're in a very dangerous place. So I'd never walk away from Christ. I'd never betray Him. I'd never steal or murder or walk away from my family for another woman or another man. I'd never do that. <laughs> never, never say never. You don't know yourself. And the moment you start to think, never me, is the moment you are right on the edge of falling into it. When you know yourself, according to Scripture, you will know how closely you must cling to Christ. It is Him and in Him alone that you are safe. You know, maybe you, you don't think this about yourself. You, you say, I do distrust myself. Um, I'm like these disciples. I'm not proud or self-confident. I'm none of those things. Well, let's put it to the test. How do you react when someone confronts you about a particular sin? 
That's what happened to the disciples. How would you react if you and two other friends were in a room and somebody came in and said, one of you is going to betray me? What would your first reaction be? Do you respond with humility? Take a look at yourself and ask, is it true? Someone confronts you with a sin, something you've done. Do you look at yourself and ask the question first, is it true about me? It might not be. But do you start with a self-examination or do you just get irritated or angry at them and ask how dare they point the finger at me? And a well-meaning reproof is received as a direct personal attack. It's one of the ways you can tell how much you trust yourself. How do you respond when a brother or sister in Christ comes and seeks to do you good by confronting a sin or, or focusing your attention on holiness or keeping, trying to keep your priorities on Christ and on eternity? So a brother or sister comes keeping watch for your soul because they are in fact your brother's keeper. How do you respond? With humility? You seek it out in yourself to see, do you need to change? You need to make something right with someone else. You throw your hands up in the air, grit your teeth. They don't know what they're talking about. There can be a self-righteous, smug way to confront sin. You know that, and I know that, and I've seen that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about genuine love that someone might have for you that demands the difficult or challenging or unpopular word be spoken. And when it is, this kind of person refuses to receive it. They deny it. They they get angry. They don't for a second consider that maybe they could be wrong. Don't think for a moment that maybe I need to examine myself and my motives. They go on the defense and they fire back. Folks, listen, this is a merciless person. It's not only the mark of someone who is proud, but of someone who is graceless. Why graceless? One of the things the Bible teaches is a mark of a Christian is they're teachable. This goes hand in hand here. Teachable people are people who have experienced grace. Why? Because whenever someone starts to say to himself, how dare you say I sin? How dare you say I'm wrong? How dare you say I need to repent? If that's your response when others are concerned for you, that's not a good sign. It may be a sign that you've never experienced grace in the first place because if you have, you would know how sinful you are and how prone to your your wandering heart can be. You would know how long you've been deceived by your heart and how untrustworthy your thoughts of yourself often are. Anyone who has experienced grace knows how much they need it. And anyone who knows they need grace aren't going to get offended when somebody points that out. You know you need to repent precisely because you've experienced grace. And so even if you get irritated, at least you have to take it seriously and examine yourself. Maybe there is something that needs to be repented of. And in the same way, someone might point their finger at a wound left unattended and say, hey, you should do something about that. Well, you might not like them pointing it out. But they aren't wrong. And you do well to take a look at the sin wound that may be festering and do something about it. These disciples are told that one of them is going to betray Christ. One of them is going to be an apostate. Fall away. Their response is immediately to examine themselves. Lord, is it me? Am I the one? Time with Christ had made them deeply aware of the deceitfulness of their own hearts. And so when Jesus tells them one is a traitor, they don't start looking around the room. The only place the disciples look is downward into their own hands, fearful it will be Him. They don't trust their resolve. They don't trust their righteousness. They don't trust their own heart. And so they look inward in concern and not outward with suspicion. Every every single one of them is aware of their frailty. And so they respond by saying, Lord, I know my heart. It cannot be trusted. Lord, please tell me. It's not going to be me, is it? Tell me, Lord, I won't be the one who betrays you. 
Verse 23, the Lord answers and gives them no assurance. All he does in verse 23 is emphasize how terrible it would be. He says, whoever the betrayer is, the Lord has been nothing but kind to that man. He has invited him to his table. The Lord's provided for his needs. He has taught him. He has given him his trust and his friendship. He has shared a meal with him. It's like you sitting here on a Sunday. We worship together, have the Lord's Supper. You, you, you share, uh, share it among fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. People who have prayed for you. People who have cared for you. People who have helped you when you were in need. People who have encouraged you and taught you and walked with you for all of this time. And then after three years, you go out into the parking lot after Sunday morning, take out a gun and start shooting people who have cared for you and walked with you. It's not a tragedy. It's a treachery. Few things are worse than betrayal. And Jesus warns these people sitting at the table, His disciples, this man considering whichever one of them it is, they don't know, whichever one of them that is considering handing over Christ, it would be better for him had he never been born. Think about hearing that from the words of Christ. It would be better for you if you had never even been born. It's Judas. He's not mentioned until verse 25, but he's in the back of the mind the whole time. Now he's got to say something. He, he can't stay silent or he'll implicate himself. And so he speaks up finally. Let me read verse 25 from the New American Standard Bible, the clearest translation of this verse. And Judas who was betraying him, so he's in the process of handing Christ over, he says, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said so yourself. Judas is he's trying to bluff. He's trying to cover up his tracks. And Jesus answers ambiguously. He tells him, You've said so yourself. Well, what's that mean? Is it not going to be him? Judas says, is it going to be me? It's not going to be me. You've said so yourself. Does that mean it's going to be Judas or it's not going to be Judas? It was meant to be unclear. It wasn't part of the plan to expose Judas. If he had, Peter would have leapt across the table and strangled him. But everything is going to go according to plan. And everything must go according to plan. And because it's God's plan, everything will go according to plan. All throughout this chapter and all through Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has been laying down before His disciples what would happen. He's been telling uh, His opponents how His death would take place. Judas objects. The, the disciples object. The rulers object. The devil himself objects. Everyone is objecting when Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen this way. And Jesus tells them, no, it is going to happen this way because I have said it will happen this way. And here you have the, the collision of the sovereignty of God and the will of man. God is sovereign over Judas and sovereign over what Judas is about to do. He has ordained it from the beginning, and yet Judas is responsible. Nobody twists Judas's arm. No one made Judas decide to sell Christ out. Judas decided to do it. He made up his mind. You see this throughout the Gospels. Why did Judas betray Christ? The answer is obvious. He loved money more. And yet, it was determined thousands of years prior that Judas would betray him. And you say, well, wait a second. Didn't, didn't Satan enter into him and then go out? Yes, he did. But that was long after Judas had made up his mind and gone to get the money and betray him. You know, I was reading um, in Chronicles, First Chronicles uh, this morning, the census of David... It's in chapter 21, David commands a census and it's evil. But the very first verse in Chronicles is, and Satan came against David to cause him to bring about the sentence, the, the census. 
But then if you go back to Second uh, Samuel, it's the same, uh, talking about the same census, it says in the very first verse, and God stirred up David to take a census of the people. So we have one, God says he's going to do it, stir him up. You read in First Chronicles, Satan comes to do it. And then later on in the same chapter, David, when he sees the plague, says, Lord, I and I alone have done this. Why have you brought the plague on this people? So God is at work. Satan is at work. And yet David understands and knows he is responsible. You see this here in Judas. God is ordaining. Satan is at work. Judas is responsible. This is just a glimpse of how God's sovereignty works in carrying out His will, in bringing things to come to pass. He ordains that they will. He ordains that people do certain things, and they do. Yet it is never in a way that coerces them or violates their wills. He doesn't twist anybody's arm. He doesn't force them to do something they don't want to do. People do exactly what they want. Judas did exactly what Judas desired and Judas determined to do, and all of it was according to God's plan. And even then, plotting his treachery, even here, planning to hand over Christ according to the foreordained plan, even still, the Lord calls Judas to reconsider what he's doing. He warns him. This is a warning to Judas. This is, this is Jesus saying to the disciples, but specifically to Judas, you need to stop and think about what you're doing. If someone comes to you and says, if you do what you are thinking about doing, it will be better for you had you never been born, you're going to stop and ask yourself, maybe I shouldn't keep going on this course, right? So Judas is going to be condemned. It won't be without warning. It won't be without, without a word from Christ himself. If Judas changes course, he will be spared. But if he does not, it will be better for him had he never been born. Now, Jesus knows what he'll do. He, Judas has found out he can't hide it. The reaction of the twelve, eleven testify against him. Jesus' ambiguous answer gives him time. He has warned him, one of the strongest warnings in the whole Bible. Every avenue is flung open for Judas to repent. The Lord himself has called him out and rebuked him. But the rebuke falls on deaf ears. Judas denies it. Judas denies it even with the 30 coins in his pocket. And not only does he deny it, he asks the Lord to vindicate him. He doesn't take it. He doesn't receive what the Lord is saying. And it doesn't seem to trouble him at all. That's how those without grace in the hearts and love for Christ respond when they're rebuked. They don't listen. They come face to face with their sin, face to face with the truth. How much more obvious could it be for Judas? He's met with the leaders. He's got the coins right there with him. That very night, he's formulating his betrayal. Jesus calls him out, and he denies, denies, denies. Have you ever wondered why you, maybe when you tried to talk to someone or warn them about a decision that they've made or a sin in their life or the directions it's going, and you're talking to them about this because you know what's going to happen if they keep going, but it's just like you're speaking to a brick wall. They're not accepting any of it. They're denying what is obvious and refusing it, and they're getting more and more annoyed, or they're, or they're apathetic and they don't seem to care at all. This is usually why. Love and grace are not a part of that person's DNA. And if they are, they've gone totally cold. If that's you this afternoon, be careful. You might be going on the path of Judas. Deaf to rebuke, unteachable, upset that Christ wasn't giving him what he wanted. In this case, it was money. If that's you, you're going along shrugging off the rebukes, shrugging off warnings, ignoring signs in your life, 
giving a deaf ear when someone comes to you. All of the reproach is falling on a, de- uh, on, on, a, on, a, on a deaf ear like a brick wall. If that's the path you're on, it's not somewhere you want to be. It's like Ahab. After he led Israel into a new age of heightened idolatry, Elijah comes and confronts him. So, so Ahab, he, he started, he was sacrificing his children. He set up Baal in the temple. All kinds of idols everywhere caused the land severe trouble. So God sent a seven-year drought that led to a famine. And when the king sees Elijah, he raises his voice and he hollers at Elijah and says, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? He blames Elijah for the seven-year famine that's plaguing the land. He blames Elijah for his own suffering. Not once did Ahab consider that maybe he was to blame for the nation's hardship. It's the same just a few chapters later. The city of Samaria is besieged. Elisha is there. The two, uh, two mothers bring a horrific story to the king. The king hears it. He is grieved by what he hears. He tears his clothes. It says he's wearing sackcloth underneath. And when he hears about the, the dire condition in the city that's besieged and surrounded, this is what he says. Let it be unto me. If Elisha's head is not taken from his shoulders by this time tomorrow, he is made aware of the devastation around him. And instead of thinking, maybe I shouldn't be doing what I am, maybe I should repent and give glory to God, maybe I should cry out for deliverance and forsake all of the evil that I've caused this people to do, he says, I'm going to find those who serve this God and I'm going to kill them. Judas responds in the same way. His heart is not moved when the Lord rebukes him. He's not going to consider what Jesus is saying. He's not moved by his words, either on that night or for the last three years. And he goes out into the night with the heart as black as night to betray Jesus to be murdered. This is so different from King David. When King David is confronted by Nathan, he falls to his knees and cries out to God for mercy. But for this one, for Judas, and for anyone who's going to follow in his path, walk with Christ for a little while and then betray Him, it would be better for them had they never been born. In other words, better to never have existed than to have existed and endure what this man will endure. Better if the man never existed than to exist forever in hell. Why? Because, listen, the severity of punishment in hell is related most directly not to how much sin you've committed, but to how much truth and understanding and knowledge you reject. The severest damnation in hell comes on Judas. The crowds had lessons in parables. One of the reasons Jesus spoke in parables was to have mercy on those who didn't understand because they were going to be judged by how much they understood. Judas had them explained to him. He walked with Christ in the flesh for three years. Every sermon he heard was perfect. He had the perfect example. Everything he wanted made clear. You have questions sometimes. Theologically, all of them were made clear to Judas. He saw the miracles. He saw everything, and he rejected Jesus for money. When the Lord says, cursed is that man, he means it in the most profound way. No one in hell is suffering worse than Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. It would be better for him had he never existed than to spend forever in the depths of hell. It should have shocked him into sobriety. He should have fallen down in despair, a shame face in his hands. What was I thinking? How could I do this? It was none of that. Betrayal and death. He has said so himself. And folks, I wish there was, but there's not a good place to end on here. This is a grim passage. It is. It's a call to self-examination. 
There's not a lot of joy in the rest of chapter 26 and 27. You're talking about the Lord of glory being mistreated, handed over, mocked, beaten, crucified, killed. There is a call here for self-examination. Examine your own heart. Do you love like Christ? Or do you write people off when you feel a threat or you wonder if they might turn on you? Do you write off the church when it challenges you? When someone confronts you, do you get angry? Or do you look at yourself and ask, is it true? Do you love Christ? Or do you harbor a divided heart and try to serve two masters? There's always heart work to be done if you're a Christian. So check your affections. Are they according to the love you have received? And check your heart. It's prone to lead you astray and should not be trusted. Check your soul. Is it, is it calloused? Are there calluses starting to form in certain places? Am I in danger? Am I walking uprightly before my God? Or are you, having walked with Christ, sat in church, read His Bible, called on His name, sung His praises, witnessed His work in people's lives, and yet after all of that, you're plotting sin and treachery in your heart? One of the worst things you can do is plot how you can sin. You're wrestling with, maybe I should just leave this Christianity behind. If you do, it would be better for you to have never heard the name of Christ at all than to hear it and walk with Him and walk away. It would be better for you had you never been born. The Lord knows the heart, and so do you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that there would be nobody in here with a heart that is plotting to walk away or betray you. Lord, I pray that there would be nobody in this room deceived about themselves, thinking higher of themselves than they ought, that they would never do such and such a thing. Lord, they can and they will. But Lord, thank you that in grace you have preserved them so far. And I pray that this afternoon would be a time to put breaks, Lord, on people's souls that are traveling towards dangerous places. That they would hear this word and this warning and that they wouldn't be like Judas and push on ahead, but that they'd stop, take stock of themselves, look to their own hearts. That they wouldn't keep going on the path that leads to destruction, but that they would turn back to the path that leads to life. If they're backslidden, that they would slide back no more. But that in turn... They would live like you, loving their enemies, loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, not forsaking them when they're disappointed, but loving them wholeheartedly. Lord, I pray that you would give your people a love that springs from their own heart, a love that overflows filled up with the affection of Christ so that it doesn't matter if somebody else disappoints because our love for others is not contingent on how they treat us but on what you have already done for us. Lord, help us not to trust in our own hearts that our own anger at certain things is righteous all the time. But Lord, help us to have a wholesome distrust of ourselves that when we are confronted our first reaction would be is it me? And Lord help us to cling closely to you. You said if we seek you we will be found by you. I pray Lord that you would renew renew the striving of your people this afternoon, that their love for you would be increased, that their need for you, or at least their knowledge of their need for you, would be doubled or tripled.
that they would see, Lord, how desperately, how desperately we are in need of your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Lord, thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.